us, we're picking up where we left off last week, uh, and we're talking about the goodness of guilt and shame. Last week, the title of the lesson was The Need for Guilt and Shame, and tonight's title is The Hope from Guilt and Shame. Remember, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 3, and we saw in those first 18 verses that you have Jeremiah proclaiming the word of the Lord and saying the problem with the people is that they lack all shame. They, they don't feel any guilt. They don't care. They're just filling up their sins with no regard. They're saying all the right words. They seem to care about God. But that lack of guilt and that lack of shame is what's preventing them from coming back to God. And we're going to see the, the picture of guilt and shame here in the second half of, of Jeremiah chapter 3. And in doing so, you're going to notice the, a picture of how God is intending to use those feelings and that conscience and that weight of guilt to move people toward him. And we're going to see a lot of expectations and pictures of what God wants to do and what God promises to do if we would allow that guilt and shame to move us back toward him. So kind of the upswing positive side of the message of, of Jeremiah chapter 3. Remember as well in those first 18 verses that we saw that the intent of that guilt and shame was to give the people clarity. Clarity about what God expected. Clarity about their sin, which was supposed to lead them to a true repentance before God. And now I want you to notice how God describes what is happening. And as we're looking at the hope from guilt and shame, I do want you to pay careful attention to how God describes himself in this relationship. Because uh, I think sometimes we lack this side of seeing God and how he looks at his people. So notice Jeremiah chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 19. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. I thought you would call me my father. You would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. And I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth our shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Let's start with that section as God describes this interaction. And I want you to notice this first picture where God is describing what he wants to do with the people. You will notice in verse 19, he says, I wanted to treat you as my children. 
And I wanted you to be my beautiful heritage, this inheritance that you would enjoy. So here is this relational idea. I wanted to be your father. I wanted you to be my children. I wanted you to enjoy my inheritance. I wanted to for you to be my heritage, my prized possession, my special people. And what is fascinating is God is saying, I thought that's something you would have wanted. You see that in verse 19. I thought you would call me my father. I I thought I was offering you the very best relationship you could possibly have with me. I wanted you to be my children. I thought you wanted to call me father. I thought you were interested in that. I thought you wanted that kind of relationship. And I want you to think about that idea for a moment. What could be possibly better than having the creator God make you become his child and give you a beautiful inheritance? You have to appreciate what God was offering in this moment is here's the almighty creator God saying, I'll make you one of my children. And I will give you my inheritance if you would have only called me your father. It is a picture that I think is truly a glorious offer. It's an amazing invitation. And it's not something unique to the people of Israel in the days of Jeremiah. When you come to the apostle Peter, as he writes his first letter, you might remember that he talks about how We have been born again to this imperishable inheritance, the same kind of imagery. You have the opportunity to call God your father. You can belong to him. You can be born as a child of his and you can have this great relationship with him and have an inheritance that is undefiled and unperishing and won't fade away. God's making the same offer. And don't forget when Jesus comes on the scene and he gathers his disciples and he gathers the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells them, here's how I want you to begin your prayer. Our Father. God is explicitly just saying to us, I want a relationship with you. And I thought you would want it. I want to be your father. I thought you would want that. I want you to be my children. And I thought you would want that. I want to give you an inheritance and make you my people and I thought you would want that, but you'll notice in verse 20, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the people have been unfaithful. Here is this glorious offer, this wonderful invitation. You can belong to me. You can be my children. You can have the inheritance. And rather than accepting the offer and belonging as his children, he says, you've been unfaithful. You have been treacherous to me. You have violated the covenant. You have wandered far from me. And already, though, we've only looked at the first three chapters of Jeremiah over the past few months. uh, We have seen this picture of God saying, you've ran as far from me as you possibly could. And I was trying to give you something amazing. Now, I want you to think about. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but here's what I want you to think about. So what do you think God's response to this is going to be? I wanted you to be my child. I wanted to be your father. I was trying to make you my prized possession, my special people, and give you an inheritance, but you have been treacherous toward me. You've been unfaithful to me. 
So now here's what God says he's going to do. What do you think he's going to say? Look at verse 21. A voice on the bare heights is heard the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. There's a picture of God saying, I'm, I, I'm calling out to you. I'm pleading for you to come back to me. I, I'm the one that can heal you. I'm the one that can help you. I'm the one that can give you what you are looking for. I can one, be the one that can satisfy you if you would only look to me. You have to love how many times God likes to give the image of himself going out among the world or among people and saying, I'm trying to bring you back. One of our favorite parables, Luke 15, is the parable of lost things, where you have a lost coin, and you have a lost sheep, and you have a lost son. And in all of those pictures is God describing how desperately he is crying for his people to come back to him. How many times does God have to say to us, this is what I'm looking for. I'm crying out to you. I'm begging for you to have a relationship with me. This is what I desire. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who loves us. He wants relationship. I hope, if nothing else, that that will be emblazoned in your mind, that this is the God that we have. He wants relationship with us. He wants a relationship that is so close and so intimate that he says, I wanted you to call me father. I wanted you to be able to be my children. And the offer is so amazing in verse 22. If you would return to me, my faithless sons, my faithless children, oh, my faithless ones, I would heal that faithlessness. I I can be the one to heal the problem. Uh, you, your, your soul is sick and I can fix that. I can take care of that. That hole, that problem, that hurt, that issue. I can solve that if you will come to me. And that's what he's trying to offer them. I'm the one that can heal. So the big question I think at this, at this moment is here is God saying it's not too late. Come back to me and here's what I'm going to offer you. Here's what I want to do for you. I want you to be my children. I want to be your father and I can heal you. The big question that I think arises and well, what does that look like? What does it look like now to come to him? Since God is crying out and pleading, I can heal you. Then what does that look like? What we have in this next section is truly amazing because it pictures the people as if they're coming back to God. Now, I say as if they're coming back to God because we started this section talking about how they were coming back in pretense and they weren't doing it for real. And when we read about what was going on after the days of Josiah as the king of Judah, we know that they weren't returning back to God and they're going to be carried off into captivity. And we're going to get to a point that the people are trying to kill Jeremiah and they're throwing him in pits and dungeons and they're not really responding. But here's what God is doing is saying, here's what it should look like. If you want this healing and you want to be my children, here's what it looks like. Middle of verse 22, he says, first, 
Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. There is an acknowledgement that happens. There's an understanding of them saying, we understand that God is our master, that God is in charge. We acknowledge him. We will come to him because you're the Lord, because you are our God. Now, verse 23 probably sounds a little weird as it says, the hills are a delusion. You say, well, what do you mean by saying the hills are, are a deception or a delusion? Uh, what, what's going on with, with that imagery? But remember what we saw earlier that Jeremiah has proclaimed and said, is there a single hill on which your idols are not sitting? Remember he said under every green tree and on every hill, their idols are strewn all over the place. And so what the return looks like is the people recognizing that these idols pursuing after these false things and pursuing after their own desires through that idolatry is empty. It's a waste. It's a delusion. It is not functionally useful, satisfying, helpful. It is not any good for them. That's what verse 23 is getting at by saying that there is this delusion and deception that's on the mountains and the hills is trying to get the people to have this kind of response to look at the world and to look at life and to see all the things that are around them and recognize those things don't truly satisfy. Pretty challenging. But that's what returning looks like. Is looking at the things of the world. The things that tempt us. That seek those physical desires. And understand. That's empty. That's not fulfilling. That's not eternally satisfying. In fact that's what you see in the rest of the sentence. They understand that salvation is truly in the Lord, their help and their hope and their life is not in the things of this world, but truly in God. So they are acknowledging the Lord is our God. The hills are a delusion. Going after the things of the world and pursuing those things is emptiness. Don't have time for this, but just do this on your own in your mind sometime. How many things did you have in life that you were you you thought would be absolutely satisfying if you had it and it wasn't? It's a long list, I know. It, everything is good. This is the one. And then you give it a few months. Or if you're lucky, a year or two. <laughs> and then it wasn't. You know, well, this job's going to be everything. Or it won't. Uh, this, this, this place is going to be great. Or it's not. Or having this vehicle is going to be wonderful. But it won't. And always. It's emptiness. And our hope and our salvation is in God. And I want you to notice verse 24. This is a powerful thing that they now say. Talk about an understanding. But verse 24. From our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. Did you get a sense of what he just said right there? He just said, we now realize that us following our own desires and our sinful ways and all of the, our wishes and wants and following our heart and doing what we think is best has consumed the fruit of our labors. Put this in our way. 
Everything you worked for and everything that you thought was so important gets wasted by sin. All that time, wasted. All the money you make, wasted as you throw it into sinful things or sinful desires. Here they are going, everything that God has ever given us and all the things that we could have enjoyed as the fruit of our labors. We have wasted it on these shameful things from our youth and it's all devoured. It's gone. It's empty. It's wasted away. There's nothing to show for it. At the end of the day, it's all gone. This is the nature of sin. Sin lies to us and say, this is going to be worth it. You should pay for this. You should buy this. You should expend for this. These are the things that are going to make you happy. So we do. We waste our time and we waste our money. We waste our wealth and we make sacrifices. And at the end of the day, it's all devoured. There's nothing left. Parenthesis, Ecclesiastes, right? Gone. Vapor. And here are the people saying, we understand this. We now know that pursuing the idols is emptiness and that we have wasted our time and we have wasted our money and we have wasted all of our efforts on these things. So much so, listen to verse 25. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. That is really powerful. I want you to hear that what the people are saying is that they are ready for God to give them what they deserve. That's how open and honest they are right here. They're saying we have sinned against you, God, and we are worthy of the shame and dishonor and guilt. They say, let us lie down in it. (laughs) I want you to appreciate that they don't come before God and go, you know, I really want to avoid that. I really would prefer not to have any shame or guilt or dishonor. This is this is our culture. We want to do all kinds of things wrong and bear no consequences. And I don't want to feel guilty and I don't want to feel shame. And I don't want to have any of those kinds of things. And I want you to see that here is a picture of what returning to God looks like. And he's describing there, we're coming to you. You're the Lord, our God. The hills are a delusion. We've wasted our time in shameful things and wasted our, the fruit of our labor And we are ready to lie down in our shame and in our dishonor because we have sinned against you. Do you see what God is doing? There is a need for us to feel shame and dishonor and guilt from our sins because we're ready to accept it. We're finally ready to say, okay, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not dodging it. We talked a little bit about this last week, and it's worth pulling in right what you see happening right here. How many times are we trying to get away with our sins? No one know. We're just going to cover it over. Don't say anything. Everybody stay quiet. Don't, no, no. Nobody know. I don't want any shame. I don't want any dishonor. I don't want any guilt. Just keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Notice what these people are doing. They're advertising it. We should lie down in our shame. We should just be covered over in our dishonor. Why? Because that's supposed to lead to that kind of open confession. 
A true heart before God isn't hiding things. That was the whole physical problem of Adam and Eve. They're trying to hide what they've done. And God's like, are you really going to play a game of cat and mouse in me? Okay, where are you guys? You know, I don't know what happened to you. I know you're somewhere down there. I mean, that's what we think we can do with God. Well, we'll just hide it and cover it over and he won't know. And, you know, the, the heart that God wants are a people who will feel the consequences of their sin and they feel guilty before God. They're not brazen. They aren't coming in and going, yeah, I don't care. But they're broken by it. And I want us to think about if we never feel the weight of our consequences, if we never feel the consequences of what we've done, you're never going to feel the guilt and shame for those sinful choices, which is never going to move you to repentance and confession then. You ever wonder why God says, I forgive you, but you're going to have all these consequences still? And why, why do there have to be consequences, God? I just want to be scot-free. Well, God's trying to do something. There, there's a hope in moving us toward God that we need the guilt and shame. We need the consequences. We need the pain. He wants us to feel the weight of the emptiness of life that comes from rejecting him. And as I thought about this point that is given to us here in verse 25, as they're proclaiming this guilt and shame that they are worthy to have cover us, isn't that kind of terrifying? I mean, I think we're just kind of terrified to be a people who will admit their sins and deal with the consequences. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why that is. I, I don't know. We like to pretend to everybody, oh, I've got no problems. I've got no sins. I've got no issues, right? <laughs> There's something about that that we struggle with. And I want you to see the openness that's being described here of these people who are coming back to God. They're not pretending that they have it all figured out. They're openly proclaiming their sin and saying what they did in the past was a lie and delusion. That was sin and that was wrong and it ate up all of the fruit of my labor. And I'm not going to do that anymore. That's what they're saying. We're worthy of guilt and shame. We're willing to experience it. Let us lay down in it, they say. And I think this is a, a, a wonderful picture of what true confession and truly contrite hearts look like. Now, here's the question. So what's what's God going to do about that? Because I think that's what we get scared of. Is, well, if I come before God open and honest and say, here's all my sins and here's all I've done and I'm worthy of shame and dishonor and disgrace and the consequences of my sin and I've thrown away the fruit of my labors of all the blessings that you've given to me, what's God going to do? Glad you asked, chapter 4. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you will remove the detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall they glory. This is a fascinating answer that God gives in a horrible chapter break right there. Because he's in the midst of an answer here giving what was going on in this scene. Notice God's first answer in verse 1. It sounds really weird. So if you will return, then return. 
And you go, okay, that, what, what are you trying to do there? What, if you're going to return, then make sure you return to the Lord. But I think there's something very important about that picture. First of all, that it's not just a feeling. It's not good enough to just feel like, you know, I need to return to God. A lot of people hit that point. A lot of people are like, yeah, I need to really do something. Yeah, you know, I think I should change my life. If I had a dollar for every conversation of people I've talked to, you know, I really should probably do something different. I would have a lot of dollars. Because a lot of people get the feeling of, oh, yeah, I think I should probably do something. But notice what he's describing here. If you're going to return, then you need to return and you need to return to the right person. If you're going to come back and you're going to restart and you're going to recognize that the hills are a delusion and all of those desires are emptiness and all of the the waste of time and waste of the fruit of the labors and I'm worthy of the shame and the dishonor of my sins. If you're really grappling onto that, then you need to truly return to the Lord. And I bring it up that way because sometimes what happens is we have a temptation to return to a false idea. Because here's what our spirituality in our world is. Okay, I need, to, I need to fix my life. I need to do things right. So here's what I need to do. I need to be true to myself. That'll be my big return. I'm going to be true to myself. Or I just need to be me. Or I just, you know, I just need to find myself right now. That's not returning to the Lord. You're returning to this false idea, this false notion. And sometimes it is a return even to their sinful ways. One of the problems you see in the days of Jeremiah is they go, oh yeah, I need to change. And then nothing happens the next day. And they go right back to the things that they were doing. Here is this this pressing that God says, if you're really ready to return, then you need to take a step toward God. And you see that in the rest of verse one, when he really drives that. If you will remove the detestable things from my presence, but don't stop reading and do not waver. Let me illustrate it like this. How many times have I said, all right, I'm going to start a diet. And then tomorrow came and I didn't remove the detestable foods. And I wavered. I'll be talking a lot. <laughs> a lot. You see what God's doing right here? If you're going to do this, then do this. If you're going to return, then let's get real. Let's get serious and return to the Lord. Step one get rid of the detestable things and don't. Waver. I wonder how many times on Monday we waver from the detestable things that we committed to get rid of on Sunday. I'm all in. All right. I got to I got to make some major changes. Going to get rid of those things. Monday rolls around. There they are. We waver. And God is painting a, a, a picture here. Return to me and do it for real. Get serious. Be devoted. Make it a real commitment. Be dedicated. Stick to this. Give him your all and get rid of the detestable things. The things that you know you should change. He's saying, do it. Don't waver. Stop waiting around. Stop dancing with it. Change it. Move it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Whatever you've got to do. Get rid of the detestable things that are keeping you from God. 
And then he goes even a little bit further in verse three. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and righteousness, basically, I'm taking the pledge today. You remember Joshua had to do that? Joshua had to do that to the people. It's amazing the the, the generation that had come into the, the, the land of promise and conquered all the enemies and driven them out. And you get to the end of the book and Joshua says, you all have idle problems. You all aren't serving the Lord. And he kind of just throws it down and says, it's time to make a pledge. It's time to make a very verbal, real commitment. And he just says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. By the way, don't stop reading right there. Because all the people go, oh yeah, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua goes, you can't. You can't serve the Lord because you're not willing to get rid of the detestable things and be real with God. You just keep saying it. You have to love how Joshua just calls them out. That's what Jeremiah is doing right here. Pledge yourself to the Lord. And notice what he says, in truth and justice and righteousness, do it. Do it for real. Do it right. Do it the way God says Pledge yourself to him. And notice the conclusion of what he, what's going to happen in verse 2. This sounds really strange. What would you expect the, the outcome, the reward to be? Verse 2. Then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. What? <laughs> I thought that would say something very personal to me, right? You know, if you will do this and God's going to just pour down blessings all on me and he's going to make your life rainbows and unicorns and it's going to be great. That's not what he says. He says, then the nations will be blessed in God and the nations will glory in God. What are you trying to say here? You know, we live in a time and it's even filtering in among the people of God that we want to change the world, right? We want to make a difference. We want to make a splash. We want to make things better. And I want you to see what God just said right here. He just made the point, you know, if you would repent, it would change the world. He just talked about acknowledge God, put away the detestable things, make a real pledge, change your life. And if you do, the world is going to be blessed in God. You go, what? Well, think about the truth of that. How many times do you suppose that we ruin our opportunity of reaching the world so that they glorify God because we're so wrapped up in acting like the world. At this point in the days of Jeremiah, these people don't stand out from the world in the slightest. (laughs) They are acting and behaving just like them. They've got their idols. They're doing all the exact same things that they do. And there's a reason why God is constantly calling for his people. Don't conform to the world. You can't be like them. Or how about what Jesus would say? You're supposed to be salt and light. And you can't transform people so that they see the glory of God if you act like the world. If you've got all the same detestable things in your life as they do, what are they going to see? Are they going to glorify God? Of course not. 
Of course not. They're not going to see any difference in us if we act like them. And he's just punching them hard right here and saying, if you would make the Lord your God, the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. Why? They're going to see what you have in God and they're going to want that too. They're going to see how your different life is something to be applauded. And that's why you have Jesus saying that if we would do that, then the nations would even, the peoples, the Gentiles, that they would glorify God. If we would be salt and light, if we would give ourselves over to that. And Jeremiah is pulling that point here is that the way to change the world is for the people of God to repent of their sins and return to the Lord in a committed and dedicated way. Just imagine if every true faithful Christian truly repented and dedicated their life to the Lord and did what God had asked of us in truth and justice and righteousness, what that would look like. They could be pretty powerful. And that's what Jeremiah is asking them to do. Final point. Verse three. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Here's what he wants them to do. Here's, here's the big summary of how to pull all this together. Verse three. Break up your unplowed ground and don't sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, so men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Here's God's big answer. How do we return to the Lord? How do we remove the detestable things? How do we commit ourselves to the Lord? How do we do what he is showing us that we're supposed to do? And I want you to see there are two very important pictures. One can't exist without the other. Notice he says, you need to plow your heart. You need your heart to be worked on. And I think this is a very important picture because this is what God has wanted is that the guilt and the shame of our sins would be used to cut our hearts. Friends, that's what's happening in Acts 2.37. Peter proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus and they are cut to the heart. They are guilty. They are not saying, oh, don't make us feel bad. They're saying, what should we do? We need to do something. Well, here here it is. You need this to cut your heart. And notice the imagery of what he's getting at with that in verse 4. When he describes it as a circumcision of the heart. Moses spoke that way in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. What does he mean by that? Well, it gives you a great answer. Stop being stubborn. When he describes it that way, what he's saying is, you know what's happening with our hearts? We're being stubborn. We come to Monday and we're stubborn. So here's the weight I want you to feel of what he's doing right here. We have a choice when it comes to the dishonor and the guilt and shame. We can be stubborn. Cover it over, have no response to God. 
Or let that shame plow the heart. Let that be the tool that opens your heart toward God. Don't bury the feeling, but use that as a way to draw near to God. Use it as a way to say, all right, I've done wrong and I accept that and I need to do something about that. And that's the picture he's giving here when he says, get rid of the stubbornness, circumcise yourself before God, be cut to the heart, get the stubbornness away and just be open and honest and willing to just give it to God and say, here's my sins, here's my problems, here's my weaknesses. I'm giving them to you. We have that choice. But I want to underscore something very important that he says in verse four, in verse three. So break up this unplowed ground, but notice the rest of the picture. Don't sow among the thorns. And I like this because here's God saying something about us. He's saying you need to do some heart work. There needs to be some clearing that's going to go on. You've got, got some opportunity here to kind of work on that and get that all cleared out and get it right before God, which Jesus told a parable that made that very point. He made the point in the parable of, of the, the sower that God's seed can't do any work if it's landing on wrong hearts. It's just going to bounce off and do nothing and it's not going to be fruitful. Even use an image of thorny soil, of a thorny ground. And remember what that was described as all of the cares and the concerns of the world captured by the idols, captured by the desires, captured by all the things of the world. And he's saying, you need to do some heart renovation. You need to do some work in there so that the heart can be receptive to the word of God. And I submit to you what Jeremiah is doing here is that guilt and shame is part of that process. That guilt and shame are the process of maintaining soft hearts. Because as I said last week, I want to remind us of it. There is perhaps nothing scarier than a person who no longer has a soft heart. Uh, That's one of the most frightening things is you come up to somebody, they've done something awful, terrible, sinful, completely wrong, and they don't care. I've had way too many chilling conversations with people who I look in the eyes and go, this is a horrible sin that you've committed against your spouse or committed against God. Here's this terrible thing that you've done. And they go, well, yeah. You've just allowed that guilt and shame to be useless and you've covered it over and buried it rather than allowing it to maintain the soft heart needed so that you'll come back to God. I am concerned in our culture of no one should feel an ounce or a drop of guilt and shame For anything that they've done. In fact, not only should you never feel guilt and shame, you should be proud of every decision you've ever made with no regrets. I'm frightened. Because God uses the conscience and uses the guilt and the shame to maintain soft hearts to push us back to God. And here is this warning here that says, 
You better use it to cut the heart. And every time you have those moments, don't bury it, but dig the heart out, clear it out, get the soil ready. Let God's word do its work in your life and change you. Don't bury it over. All right, let's end with this. I want to bring all this together. This is a really important point right here. God did not put within us a conscience and the feelings of guilt and shame so that we would live the whole time of our lives feeling guilt and shame. That's not the point. The point for us is not to walk around going, I'm so guilty, I'm so shameful, I'm I'm so ashamed of everything that I've done and I can't see anything good in my life, it's all just guilt and shame. It's not the point. The point of the guilt and the shame is so that you would seek God for healing. That was the very point he made in chapter 3, verse 22. Is It's not about, okay, live your life and try to hide it and cover it over and don't feel ashamed. No, feel it, experience it, let the weight of it happen and use it to run to God. Because God's got his arms open crying out saying, I'm pleading with you, I can heal you. I want to be your father. I want you to be my children. I want you to have a glorious inheritance. We want to be together for all eternity. And the way to be free of the guilt and the shame in you feel is not to hide it, but to find forgiveness in our Lord. It's the whole point. Why God gave that to us is to use that as the mechanism to seek his forgiveness. Because that ultimately, this is what God wants us to do, is to seek him as our our father and then return to him. Plow the heart. Keep a soft heart. And let God's word work in your life. And don't let it be stubborn toward what he says. But feel the weight of his words of sin, judgment, wrath, and condemnation. We need to feel the weight of that. Which is why he ends that way. End of verse 4. If you won't be stubborn, won't stop being stubborn, my wrath will go forth like fire. I'm asking you to use this to come back to me before it's too late. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a way to feel the intensity of the sins that we commit. And Lord, I pray that we would always have soft hearts that are pricked by our sins. Lord, I pray that you would constantly poke our spirits again and again when we have moved away from your word and your will. And Lord, help us to feel the guilt and the shame that we rightly deserve when we sin. But Lord, also help us to experience the healing and grace that you said that you give to us when we come to you with all of our heart. Lord, you are an amazing God who forgives even to the conscience and down to the very core of us that we can come to you and be completely healed and completely forgiven. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us every opportunity that we need to turn away from our sins, to remove the detestable things in our lives, to tear down the idols in our hearts, And truly make today a day of commitment and dedication, a true pledge to you in truth, justice, and righteousness that we will serve you, the Lord our God, that we will be your children, and that you will be our Father. 
Help us in that effort in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an invitation song to you to have hope from guilt and shame. The hope that God has given to us to be able to turn away from our sins and to use that as the opportunity to stand clean in his sight with sins forgiven, guilt erased, and the hope of eternity with God as our Father. Can we help you today to turn away from those things? Can we help you tonight to get right with God that you would take today as the opportunity? And if nothing else, would something be emblazoned in your mind with all the zeal that you feel today of how you are going to change things in your life, would you let that hit tomorrow morning when you wake up and you truly pledge yourself to the Lord your God? Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?